0: Old Testament book of 2 Samuel to start with. We're going to start at 2 Samuel, and then we're going to go to the Psalms. Now, I have to apologize to you because the the sermon title says, Think Carefully About Jesus. And uh, that's in the book of Hebrews. And Hebrews, we're in the middle of Hebrews. And uh, I want to do a good overview for the book of Hebrews. And that was planned for this morning. But uh, but I just I, I think it's extremely important for us to talk about how we're going to pray for the world in crisis and especially for the people of Ukraine. And uh, my reason for that comes from Second Samuel chapter 23 in the Old Testament. Second Samuel chapter 23. It's amazing how you'll remember something in Scripture, and then every time. You and I have a responsibility, or every time I have a response, I think of this passage of Scripture, a passage of Scripture that encourages me not to neglect my duty, not to run from my post, not to retreat, and not to ignore what the church is dealing with. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 11 and 12, when God is talking about David's mighty men, he mentions the man... Shama. That's his name. And here's the circumstance. The Bible says the Philistines had gathered together into a troop where there was a piece of ground full of lentils. Now, you don't have to have those kind of details in Scripture. But God gave us those details. In this very same chapter, the Bible talks about a man going down into a pit and killing a, a day God doesn't have to give us those kind of details but those kind of details help us to remember <laughs> the account and never forget it and I will never forget this one so the Bible says the Philistines had gathered together but what did the people do the people fled from the Philistines the people decided they didn't want to be where the battle is The people decided they didn't want to help. The people decided we got better things to do. The people decided we're too afraid to be involved. Whatever it is, they fled the scene. And he was left standing all by himself in the field. When I was taught in seminary, this passage of scripture it was, you know, you and I have to show up where the church is doing battle. We have to show up. And I got to tell you the church in Ukraine is really in a serious battle as we speak thousands of churches in Ukraine and the people of Ukraine but the Bible says he was he stood fast the Bible says that he stationed himself in the middle of the field defended it and killed the Philistines so the Lord brought about a great victory because he did not retreat from where the battle was Raging. Well, I uh, I want you now to turn over to the Psalms that we're reading for the Bible study. Three of them that we read last week, and one that we're reading this week. I want us to start at Psalm sixty-nine, and we're going to look briefly, very briefly, at these Psalms. And in order to do it briefly. I have taken my four colors in my Bible, and when I read each of these psalms, I color-coded it, and so we're going to go through this as color-coding, but I want you to know that in the back of your mind ought to be, how do we pray for this problem in Europe? How do we pray about the war? And how do we pray for the people of Ukraine? How do we support them as the body of Christ? What are we supposed to do? Well, these four psalms are going to give you some idea. Now, when I color code, I tell everybody that I'm not the smartest tool in the shed, and so for me to get anything out of Scripture, I have to do it simply. I just I'm not the deep thinker i I've, I've thrown away hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. I've probably thrown away close to a thousand books in my library that are just uh, no longer important to me anymore because they're too deep. Now that doesn't mean I'm a shallow person, but there's four things in every passage of scripture you need to know. Number one, you need to know what the problem is. Is there a problem in that passage to endure? Or is there a blessing to embrace? And so in Psalm 69, I read through that passage of scripture. We're just going to look at the highlights. And I discovered, and I highlight that in yellow in my Bible. And I highlighted verses one, two, three, and 4. The Bible says in Psalm 69, save me, O God. That's a prayer. But he gives the reason why he needs to be saved. He says, because I'm in a peck of trouble. I'm in more trouble than I've ever been before. The waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I have come into deep waters where the floods overflow me, and I don't know what I'm going to do about it. I don't know what I'm going to do about it. And because of that, and then he describes, that's the word picture he uses. He uses the word picture of sinking sand or a flood But he describes the actual problem in verse 4. He says, Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. They are mighty who would destroy me, being my enemies wrongfully. Though I have stolen nothing, I must still restore it. And then you and I could go through the rest of the psalm and we could pick out some additional details that would describe. The problem that he is facing, and he doesn't know what to do about it. Number two, it's always important for us to look at the natural reaction. How is he reacting to the problem? Is he reacting in a spiritual way or is he reacting in a natural way? And the natural way isn't always a sinful way, sometimes it can be, sometimes it is not. And he's reacting in verse three to a natural way to react to a problem like this. I always highlight in my Bible the natural reactions in orange. I am weary with my crying. My throat is dry. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. In verse 10, he says, When I weep and chasten my soul with fasting, that becomes an insult to me as well or a reproach. It doesn't make any difference what I do. Nothing seems to change what's going on. And the enemy scoffs at me. The enemy makes fun of me. And by the way, in verse 11 and following, he says, I became a byword to them who sit in the gate and speak against me. I am the song of the drunkards. I am the favorite topic of town gossip. I wish, he says in verse 20, that someone would take pity. I wish that there were some who would be willing to comfort, but that hasn't happened. And so his natural reaction is there for us, and I want you to see how he translates that in his thinking to his enemy. In verse 22, 23, 24 to 28, I want you to listen to what he says. When he talks about his enemy, he says, let their table become a snare before them and their well-being a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and make their loins shake continually with fear, obviously. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their dwelling place be desolate. Let no one live in their tents for they persecute the ones you have struck And talk of the grief of those you have wounded. I find it interesting that he sees in the province of the Lord that God is over all of this and God is the one who has allowed all of this to happen. But he can't take the fact that the enemy is gloating over it and taking advantage of it and out to destroy them. He says, add iniquity to their iniquity and let them not come into your righteousness. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous, verse 28. Now that's what you call an imprecatory prayer. That's what you call a prayer that God would just wipe them out. And it's a very natural reaction because we are all born with a sense of justice. God has given to us that sense of justice. And to the psalmist the sense of justice would hear be Lord destroy them. Please destroy them. But there's some things that are going to help him in his whole discussion about this in Psalm 69. He acknowledges in verse 16 that God is a loving God. Now, if you can get to that place when you're dealing with this kind of a problem, you've made some real headway, right? Because your natural reaction would be to blame God for all of it. But he acknowledges that God is a loving God in verse 16. And he acknowledges that God is a merciful God. And he prays and he says, God, do not hide your face from your servant. I am in real trouble here, and I need you to hear me speedily. Already we've got a lot of things that we know to pray about, don't we? We have every right to pray about the things he is praying about. Lord, they need your help speedily. Lord, destroy the enemy. Lord, help us to see that in all of this you are loving and kind You're able to deliver. You're able to turn this whole situation around. All of that, all of that can be included here. Now, what does he do? I always highlight things about God and the way I'm supposed to think in blue. But what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? Notice in verses 5 and 6, and I highlight 5 and 6 in green, he wants to move as quickly as he possibly can from the natural way of reacting to things to the spiritual way of responding. And notice in verse 5, he says, he he prays to God and he says, Oh God, you know my foolishness and my sins are not hidden from you. Let not those who wait for you, O Lord God of hosts, be ashamed because of me. And let not those who seek you be confounded because of me, O God of Israel. I find it interesting that he says, you know what? He says, we're in a predicament and the worst thing I can do is to give the impression that we're the right good people in all of this and have never done anything wrong, have never sinned, and the enemy is all bad. Well, that may be true. But you say, Lord, we all sin. In fact, the whole reason for this is because of sin. The whole reason for this is because of sin. And in verse 13, he says, But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, in the acceptable time. O God, in the multitude of your mercy, hear me in the truth of your salvation. Deliver me out of the mire. Let me not sink. Deliver me from those who hate me and out of the deep waters. Let not the flood water overflow me and let the deep swallow me up and let not the pit shut its mouth on me. What a string of word pictures that describes the dire consequences. If things don't change, verse 29, I am poor and sorrowful. Let your salvation, O God, set me up on high. I will praise the name of God with a song, I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This also shall please the Lord better than an ox or a bull or a sacrifice. For the Lord hears the poor and does not despise his prisoners. I love the way he ends this psalm, by the way, because he broadens it to all of creation. He says, you know what? Heaven and earth praise God. The seas praise God. And God is ultimately going to save Zion. He's ultimately going to build the cities of Judea. He's going to dwell there will dwell there, will possess it, and the descendants of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. What optimism. But we see a lot in there that we can use as an example of prayer. Now, the other ones, that's the longest one. These others are not very long in comparison. But go to Psalm 70. This psalm is really very valuable for a person who is short on time and long on need. And I would strongly suggest that you and I ought to pray for the leaders. The leaders in the conflict over there in Europe. Think about this. The natural reaction in verse 1 to the problem that he is facing, which is described in verse 2, 3, and 4 with three phrases. There are people who are trying to kill me. There are people who are delighting in my misery and my hurt and my defeat. And number three, there are people who are saying, aha, we finally got him now. He's surrounded. And I think it's important for us to pray for the leaders. His prayer in his natural reaction is what? Make haste, O Lord, to deliver me. Make haste to help me, O Lord. Verse five. I am poor and needy. Make haste to help me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. And, um, and then, of course, we have his actions in verse 4. Let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. And let those who love your salvation say continually, let God be magnified. I can't imagine the church in Ukraine not saturating their congregations with these passages of scriptures. I cannot imagine that not happening. The third passage of scripture is Psalm 75. That's the last one for last week, and then we have one for this week, Psalm 75. Psalm 75, verse 1 says, We give thanks to you, O God, we give thanks. That's what he does. In verse 9, he says, I will declare forever, I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. You know, it's interesting that this is the attitude and the response that we find so many times in the Psalms from people who are in the worst, direst conditions possible. But he has reasons for that. In verse 1, he says, Your wondrous works declare that your name is near. When I choose the proper time, God says, I will judge uprightly. The earth and all its inhabitants are dissolved at that time, and I will set its pillars firm. Now, I'm reading from the New King James Version. I, I like what uh, I like what a modern paraphrase has to say about this, because we could take the time to to come up with this conclusion, but let me just read it to you. When earthquakes and the people live in turmoil, the earth and all its inhabitants are dissolved. When the earthquakes and the people live in turmoil, God says, I am the one who keeps its foundations firm. I am the one that makes sure the earth stands in spite of all of that. God says I say to the boastful to the proud who just feel that they've got to do, do well you can read it there he says the thing you and I need to look at in this particular passage of scripture is that there's a day of judgment coming and all of us know that I remember telling you a uh, teen quest uh, a counseling session one time and there was a there was a young teen who we were sitting on the steps outside of TeenQuest, and, 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 and the boy just couldn't. He just was living a lifestyle that was just absolutely atrocious, and, and I said to him, I said, aren't you concerned about Judgment Day? You know, God's, aren't you concerned about Judgment Day? And he said, yeah, he says, I know there's a Judgment Day. I know it's coming, and I know I'm going to have to be accountable to God. We're all accountable to him, and I thought, wow, that's beautiful. You understand all of that. He says, but it's not making any difference. (laughs) It's not motivating me to change anything in my life. It's not motivating me to change anything in my life. But Psalm 75 is all about judgment. I want to read verses 6, 7, 8, and 9. Verse 6, 7, and 8. Because this this is the psalmist speaking in behalf of God. Exaltation comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south, but God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup. So think about this. This It's a beautiful word picture. In the hand of the Lord is a cup, and the wine is red, and it is fully mixed, which means that the dregs have not been separated from the pure wine. There's a cup of wine there, and the Bible says... That is fully mixed, and when he pours it out, surely its dregs shall surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. They don't get to enjoy the, the wine itself, but they will experience the dregs. Verse ten, all the horns of the wicked I will also cut off but the horns of the righteous shall be exalted. In the end, when all is said and done, and all the dust settles, and all the wars of history, who wins, the wicked or the righteous? The righteous. And finally, the last psalm, Psalm 79, which is a psalm for this week. Now, once again, I'm looking for the circumstance I'm looking for the situation. O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. Your holy temple they have defiled. They have laid Jerusalem in heaps. The dead bodies of your servants they have given as food for the birds of the heavens. The flesh of your saints to the beasts of the earth. Their blood they have shed like water all around Jerusalem. And there was no one to bury them. We have become a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and derision to those who are around us. Now, my question when we look at this final passage of Scripture is, can we apply this to all of the nations of the earth who find themselves in this predicament? Can we do that? Because the passage of Scripture specifically applies to the nation of Israel it specifically applies to as the bible describes verse 13 the sheep of god's pasture in the people of israel and you and i know they have suffered an awful lot uh, paul in the new testament said boy the church owes uh, owes israel a great a debt of um, a great debt because they're the ones who god used to bring us his word Boy, they've suffered for it, and they continue to suffer for it. And so that's the predicament. Can it apply to nations? Well, yes, it can. What does Psalm 33 say? What does Psalm 33 say? Psalm 33 says that, uh, what is it? Is it righteousness exalts a nation, a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people, and a people that fear the Lord, they will be what? They will be exalted. Uh, Proverbs 14, Proverbs 14, verse 34, is a great passage of Scripture. The Bible says, well, that's the righteousness exalted nation. The Psalm 33 is, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Now, I share that with you because, obviously, there's some conditions for this to be an encouragement to nations that are being destroyed, there are conditions, there's no doubt about that. It's, 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 a, it's a promise to nations who fear God. It's a promise to nations who want to honor the Lord and bless the Lord. And so in Psalm 79, when the Bible describes the nations coming up and destroying Jerusalem and surrounding it and, and giving siege and, and uh, no food and, and uh, killing everybody, The natural response to that is in verse 5, 6, and 7. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your wrath on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call on your name, for they have devoured Jacob and laid waste to his dwelling place. Now they're very realistic about it. They know that they're not a perfect nation, They know that in some way God has permitted this as judgment for their sin. I'm not saying that's always the case. But you and I know that the problems that we face in this world are because it's a cursed earth. And it's filled with sinful people. And we know what that's like because we were as sinful as anybody else. Maybe not in intensity. But before Jesus saved us, we knew what it was to be full of sin. But in verse 8, he says, listen, we are realistic. Here's our concern. Don't remember our former iniquities. Let your tender mercies come speedily to meet us, for we have been brought very low. And you can read verses 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12, and 13 and get a sense of what their response to all of this is. But here's what amazes me. What amazes me in all of these psalms and there are, there are there are dozens more I just picked four out of the daily bible reading what amazes me about all of these psalms is that it doesn't make any difference how bad the circumstances are the actions of the people described under these desires these desperate situations is that I'm going to praise The Lord. For what? For his goodness. For his mercy. Because boy we need it. For his help. Because we need it as fast as we can get it. And I'm going to thank the Lord. Now I. I want to make a simple application here. I want to make a simple application here. Are the. Are the. Are the. Are the uh, leaders of the superpowers of the world. Are they too far gone that God can't change their hearts? Shenacherib had Jerusalem surrounded, totally surrounded. He was the Assyrian, Assyrian leader. And he had the city of Jerusalem totally surrounded before he destroyed it, before he, dis- before he tried to destroy it. But Isaiah prayed and prayed and, prayed and 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 had the people pray. And when when, when Shenacherib got back to Assyria and he wrote the annals of the history of his campaign in Judea, you remember do you remember what he wrote? It's not in the Bible, it's in secular history. Do you know what he wrote? In secular history, in the secular history books he wrote, Well, when I got to Jerusalem, he said I had them all surrounded and caged in like a bird. Period. That's all he could say. Now, that's not what they usually said. What they usually said is, ah, we defeated them. We surrounded them and we defeated them. Because they never liked to share anything that was a defeat. But all Sennacherib could ever say was, we surrounded them like a bird in a cage. But God didn't allow them to defeat and take over the capital city of Jerusalem at that time. Years later, when Nebuchadnezzar came into Judea, do you remember when Nebuchadnezzar came into Judea and took the children of Israel captive to Babylon? Do you remember that Daniel, uh, Nebuchadnezzar came to Daniel and said, I had a dream the other night. I had a dream about a tree. And uh, Joe I had a dream about a tree. You probably know this word for word. I had a dream about a tree, and this tree was flourishing, and it was just—it productive for everybody as far as your eye could see. And in that dream, somebody come and cut it down. He says, Daniel, what does it mean? He said, the, the dream followed with, they cut it down, but they, they left the stump. And after they left the stump, the tree sprouted again. What does it mean? And Daniel says, you know what it means? It means that Nebuchadnezzar was one of the most wicked kings there was. Uh, just read the secular history books if you don't want to read what Scripture has to say about it. But the Bible tells us that Nebuchadnezzar was told by Daniel that he was going to, he was powerful as he was and as influential around the world as he was. He said, You know what? God's going to cut you down like a tree. And after a while, After he changes your mind, the tree is going to sprout again. And Nebuchadnezzar, in his own words, in his own words recorded in Daniel chapter 4, describes that experience. And finally, after God restored him to his position now as a believer... He personally says, and at the end of time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. Nebuchadnezzar. Now, why do I share that? Because in conclusion here, I think we need to make... An application here to the United States of America. Who was the worst king of Israel? Worst king that uh, Judah ever had. That, the, 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 that Israel ever had. The worst king. Not the northern kings. But who was the worst king ever to reign on the throne of Judah? What was the name? Do I remember? He's connected to Hezekiah because they're related. Hezekiah's granddad. Right? Or dad. But anyway. Manasseh was his name. And almost all that all always we remember the bad things about Manasseh. When God describes in the books of uh, of the Kings and the Chronicles the stuff that Manasseh did, you and I just shake our heads and say, "Oh, how could anybody be so mean and so nasty and so horrible and so ungodly? How is it possible?" But we don't remember a passage of Scripture in Second Chronicles that says. He eventually trusted the Lord and repented of his sin. We don't read that. We don't think of that when we think of Manasseh. But he's a work of grace. Now, here's the reason why I share that to you. Because if if we're going to make an application here, we need to make an application for us here in the United States of America. If I were to pose the problem, and I kind of did it facetiously last week, and uh, how are... You know, how, how can we save America? How can we save America? I wouldn't start with the passage of Scripture in Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. That's not where I would start, which says what? If my people who are called by my name will what? Will humble themselves and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will heal their land. I wouldn't start there. I certainly would end there. But that's not where I would start. If you were to ask me how do we save America, I would start with Romans chapter 1 verse 21 where the Apostle Paul talks about the Roman Empire and the world of that day and says, you know, the reason why there are so many social problems and so many moral, moral issues in the Roman Empire is because people people refuse to acknowledge me and they refuse to be thankful for everything that I have given them. Romans chapter one, verse 21. If you don't know it's there, right in the middle of discussing uh, the huge, huge, huge uh, moral problems in the Roman empire. And he lists them, he just, he just lists them. But right there in chapter one of Romans chapter one, the Bible tells us, I should have turned to it there so I could have had it for you quickly. Romans chapter one, verse 21, the Bible says that, what does, what does Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit say? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, verse 18, and unrighteousness. Because what is known of God is not acknowledged. And because they knew God, verse 21, they did not what? Glorify him as God, nor were they thankful. And now you have the problem. Let let, Let me answer it hypothetically for you. I say all the time that the reason why we come to church on Sunday morning is for corporate worship more than anything else, to praise God and to give him thanks because that's the first thing God expects. Most theologians looking at Romans chapter 1 will say, this is the way it's been around the world. If people thank God for who he is and what he does, then God gives them more light. Theologians are pretty clear on that. See? But here we are, Think about this hypothetically for just a second. Think about this hypothetically for just a second. If everybody in America attended church and praised God on Sunday morning, would our nation be in the condition it is? That's hypothetical, obviously, because that will never happen. But would our nation be in the condition it's in? If everybody in America were to go to church on Sunday morning and praise God corporately, not talking about because nobody knows what's happening at home, Nobody knows what's happening at home. But if, if, if our leaders saw what was happening nationwide, would we be in the situation we're in? No. So I, I personally think the best way to save America to start with is to attend church and thank the Lord. And then humble ourselves and pray and seek his face and turn from our wicked ways. And he will heal our land. That's the, the second point right there. That's in a nutshell. There are many other things, but that's in a nutshell. I have a final thought for you, and I'm going to get it out here because I think it's very, very important. Hypothetically speaking, supposing you were Nebuchadnezzar, and you had said, or you were a Sennacherib, and you had said, I have so much blood on my hands, I'm hopeless. I have so much blood on my hands, I can't turn back now. But you understand the judgment of God. You see? How different would it be, like it was for Nebuchadnezzar and like it was for Manasseh, how different would it be if we could share it doesn't make any difference how much blood you have on your hands. It doesn't make any difference how bad you are. It doesn't make any difference about any of that. Because God is willing to forgive. How about that? It doesn't change imprecatory prayers for the most part. It tempers them. It tempers them, and there's no guarantee that but the point is, the point is that there's more to life than the judgment of God. There is God's offer to forgive even the worst of sinners, even Nebuchadnezzar, and even Manasseh, and even Shenacherib, if he would have responded. Amen. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father. Lord, we thank you for these psalms. They're so relevant today. They're so so valuable for us when we think about how to pray. And Father, we need to pray. And we ask, Lord, that you would be gracious and that you would be merciful, that you would be changing the hearts of people all over Europe. And we ask in your precious name that you'd bring a, a quick resolution to the, to the war that's raging over there. Father, we just pray that you'd help us to stand in the middle of the field because that's where the battle is being waged and not to retreat, but Father, to stand there and to participate in our concerns and in our prayers and in our compassion to what we see in that part of the world. Lord, in your precious name, we ask these things as well. Amen.